You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that says trans rights are human rights, which you would think would go without saying, but well, as we learned in the last couple months while we've been on our break on the old uh, Twitter and such, no, apparently not. So uh, if like old JK, you're a turf or whatever kind of potentially vile warthog taint that doesn't support trans people or anyone else who fails to meet some disgustingly moist trash bag of a human being's idea of gender confirmation... Get the fuck off our podcast. That's a threat. I'm Megan, your non-binary co-host. Oh, I'm not Jeffrey Epstein because I wasn't murdered. <laughs> I'm RJ. Welcome to 2020. We're a month late on calling J- J.K. Rowling uh, the worst, and we're a month late on talking about the cinematic creation that's sweeping the nation. You know what that one is, RJ? 1917. We're not a month late on that. Uncut gems. No, that that just is cats. Cats. Oh, cats <laughs> of the universe. We don't know anything about cats. Yeah, I don't know anything about cats. <laughs> yeah, um, pussy's always confused me. <laughs> it's confounded me. I yeah, I can't argue with that. Today we're going to be talking about T. S. Eliot, poet, critic, playwright, dickhead. I'm looking to you for confirmation. I don't know. You, you wrote his whole fucking bio. No, I did not write his whole bio. Well, you wrote enough. You, you supposedly read enough. I, I... Although, you know what? In our last episode, you started reading the wrong author. So who knows anymore? Maybe I'm about to get a fucking uh, biography about Wilkie Collins or something. I would like to do Wilkie Collins. Oh, yeah. One day we will. Uh, T.S. Eliot was and remains an important part of the literary landscape, with many students still forced to wade through the likes of the Hollow Men, and more importantly, as we said, cats back in vogue, and a lot of people don't know that this, that's not just Andrew Lloyd Webber's fault, but it traces back to Eliot, and we are going to hold him accountable for his crimes. So, did you have to read any T.S. Eliot in school? Maybe college. Maybe graduate school? Definitely not. Like, primary or secondary school. I had to read The Hollow Men in high school. Nah. <laughs> you know, we were reading things that weren't old, pasty white men. Lucky. I was. We were reading almost exclusively old, pasty white men. Mm. That's why I was part of the International Baccalaureate Program. Yes, as you, you are want to bring up. Yep, I do want to. So, like I just said, I had to read The Hollow Men. I had to read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock in, like, high school and college. That's a fucking poem. I'm just saying. Well, you're saying you didn't have to read T.S. Eliot in, like, fucking high school. Um, I mean, it might have been assigned to me. And you just didn't fucking do it. Yeah, so when I, and most students, as far as I'm able to tell, encounter T.S. Eliot in school, it's either in the form of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, a poetic ode to perhaps the most pathetic midlife crisis in poem form, uh, the Hollow Men, and the Wasteland. Or at least part of the wasteland, because most teachers aren't masochistic enough to put themselves through the hell of trying to teach a bunch of students 434 lines of pretentious nonsense edited by Ezra fucking Pound. We've never done an episode on him, but my problems with Ezra Pound are well documented, and if you wish to know them, just google the fascist piece of shit. Most people, however, are generally not familiar with his contribution to whatever the fuck Cats is. We're not sure. I know that we've had like a whole conversation on the show before about how neither of us knows exactly what Cats is beyond what is either a furry's wet dream or worst nightmare, but I I don't remember what episode that was. Go back and re-listen to all of our episodes, please. Anyway, RJ is going to talk about one of T.S. Eliot's most well-known works because it's already a part of his syllabus for his job and he's lazy. And I will be covering a piece of literary criticism he did because it's relevant to our interests and... He was apparently also at the forefront of the new criticism movement, which I'll explain more when we get there, as well as touching on three other pieces, one of his most famous and acclaimed works of poetry, one that is nearly as acclaimed, mostly for being absolutely fucking inscrutable, 
And then the one book he wrote for his godchildren for funsies that somehow became a long-running musical hit, and now a bonkers CGI nightmare. We're not talking about any of his plays, though, because fuck that. And there's only so much time in one episode, and I don't care. But before we learn the proper names for cats, which way the world ends, and how many coffee spoons I should be measuring my life with, we need to talk about old Telliot Selliot Elliot. RJ? Thomas Stearns Elliot was born September 26, 1888, and died January 4th, 1965. Ellie was born into a Boston Brahmin family. If you never heard about a Boston Brahmin family I, before... I have not. No worries, you're in good company with Megan and myself. We've never heard the term either. We've never heard a lot of things. Basically, it's a fancy word to describe the Boston elite. The Brahmin being the highest caste in the Hindu caste system. So they just needed a word other than elite to just show how elite... They are over your lowly ass. So how elite and pretentious. Because they have to, they're like, mm, no, elite's not good enough. We gotta use a word that we know most people in our immediate vicinity are not gonna be able to identify. How do you like them apples? <laughs> These families had... <laughs> Man, the Brahmins are in the yard. <laughs> oh, we'll get there. <laughs> oh, Jesus. These families had direct lineage to those who came across on the Mayflower and were associated with Harvard University, Anglicism, and traditional Anglo-American customs and clothing. Ah, uh, the Brahmins are in the habit yet. <laughs> you know, they clung to their Englishness as one does. This will explain some more of Elliot later on. Other such Boston Brahmin families included the Adams, John Quincy and Samuel, the Peabody's, and of course, the Tar Boxes. Who could ever forget the tar boxes? Unforgettable, those tar boxes. <laughs> what a name. That's, yeah, that's a hell of a name. But imagine the stain on poor little Ellie's reputation to not actually have been born in Boston. <gasps> despite all of this. Instead, he was born in St. Louis, Missouri. <gasps> From my understanding, this is a small town no one has ever heard of. Nope. And where nothing good has ever happened. Nope is apparently not far from Bronson, Missouri, the best place in the world, because there, everyone talks like, looks like, and probably is, Charles Bronson. Got that Simpsons joke in. Always hey, working. Hey, Ma, I want some cookies. No dice. This ain't over. Ellie was the youngest of six surviving children. Daddy Ellie was named Henry Ware Elliott, and he was a successful president of a manufacturing company. Mama Ellie was Charlotte Champ Stearns, and she was a poet who also did social work. Ellie was generally called Tom by people who knew him, but fuck that. He was named after his maternal grandfather. Get a load of this shit. Thomas Stearns, the OGTS. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, because it's not. For being the upper echelon of society, you'd think they were a wee bit more inventive. Nope, don't have to be. Dynasty. Do better, social betters. Ellie turned to literature from a pretty early age because unlike most of his peers, he could not partake in play or sports because he was born with a double inguinal hernia. Which is? That's the kind of hernia you get in your crotch area. Oh. Not to make light of this very serious matter, but Ellie was born with two big old bumps on his dick. Ah. Since he could not socialize, he turned to books. So I guess like what, like running around and stuff would just be really painful? Yeah. Oof. Books wouldn't judge his crotchal area. <laughs> Specifically, Ellie was known for loving books about the Wild West and the works of Ono Laclasse alum Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. All about a boy out there on his own. A friend of Ellie's recounted that Ellie, quote, would often curl up in the window seat behind an enormous book, setting the drug of dreams against the pain of living with two dick ouchies. <laughs> okay, I'll admit I added that last part. <laughs> About the dick ouchies. The dick, the dick ouchies is not a part of the quote. <laughs> no. From the age of 10 to 17, Ellie attended Smith Academy and studied Latin, Ancient Greek, French, and German. Smith's Academy other notable alum include George Herbert Walker IV, cousins of the Bushes of similar names, Winston Churchill, the author, not the Prime Minister, and Vincent Price, the voice of Michael Jackson's thriller. <laughs> not all at the same time, of course. No, but a real power play of people. Oh, Yeah. I don't know, you know what, I mean, those people were around the same age. I get, yeah, I guess. Old. Old. Old timey, black Very and white old. time. <laughs> During this time, Ellie began to work on his own poetry. He claims that the results were gloomy and depressing, 
So he destroyed all the work. That's exactly the kind of shit he wrote as an adult. Yeah, it was probably about dink bumps. Dick bumps. <laughs> dink bumps, yeah. In 1904, when Ellie was 16, the World's Fair took place in St. Louis. It's a good one. They represent those small towns across the world. And what he was exposed to inspired him. He wrote three short stories shortly thereafter, and he did not destroy any of those. Upon finishing up his time at Smith Academy, Ellie moved away from St. Louis, a town which he would only return to for visits the rest of his life. Although, he would say to a friend later in life, quote, Missouri and Mississippi have made a deeper impression on me than any other part of the world. Mississippi, coming in strong. Yeah, well, I guess that's Mark Twain for you. What was the other guy? What other, what other Faulkner. guy? Faulkner. Oh, yeah, Faulkner. So at the age of 18, yeah, Twain was like Kentucky, bro. Oh, no, no. Twain was Missouri. Missouri. Oh, Missouri. Kentucky, Jesus. Yeah, they're all in there. So at the age of 18, Ellie moved to Massachusetts and took up the tradition of the Boston Brahmin and attended the one, the only, Harvard. He received a BA in philosophy and followed it up with a master's in English the following year. Of note, Ellie earned marks that were just high enough to earn his degrees. He was not given any kind of honors, and in fact, his degree was known as a pass degree, as in, he did just enough to pass. We all can't be overachievers in this life. I graduated with honors. Fuck you, T.S. Eliot. I don't know. I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, at least he graduated. I don't know, like that failure Margaret Atwood. Oh my god, that's a deep pull. <laughs> what a quitter. It's now 1910. Ellie was 22. He stuck around Harvard for a year working as a graduate assistant before he took off for the big city. No, not that big city. This guy had money. So he was able to go to the big city across the pond, the City of Lights. Paris. Paris. You know, around that time, if you weren't going to New York City to write, you were expatriating the, the fuck out of the U.S. and heading to Paris. He continued his studies there, although he did spend some time back at Harvard to study Indian philosophy and Sanskrit. While doing that studying, Ellie met the early love known as Emily Hale. The two hit it off very well. They both were in love with the sounds of their own voices, <laughs> as well as each other's writing, which is why if you go to Princeton you will find exactly 1,131 letters that were exchanged between the two. That's a lot. Jesus. Now, I love Megan. <laughs> I love you too. But Yahweh help me if I ever exchange <laughs> 1,131 letters with old Meg. Well, I mean, if you think about all the text messages we send each other. Letters. Letters. But yeah, like some of those texts you send me are very, very long. Also, sadly, I cannot find any mention of farts. Or oh. their love of each other's farts in the letters. Not everyone can be James Joyce. Yeah, that remains James Joyce specialty. <laughs> oh, no. Do you think he called his farts the James Joyce special? Also, <laughs> the 1,131 letters are only the ones he wrote to her because he eventually burned all the ones she sent him. What the fuck? So the total correspondence was much, much bigger. Damn. So she kept his letters. He burned hers. The thing is... This little thing called World War One broke out, and things got all jumbled up. The world was a mess. If our show had, I don't know how many taglines our show has at this point, at least two, but if it had another one, it would be, and then World War One broke out. <laughs> and so the world was a mess in a lot of different ways, and Ellie decided this was a good time to leave the U.S. and go to Europe, in particular Oxford, to study some more. He left Emily Hale behind, although the two would continue to write each other. Despite all this time Ellie spent around the highbrow educated type, he did not really like the crowd all that much. He wrote to a friend, quote, I hate university towns and university people who are the same everywhere with pregnant wives, sprawling children, many books, and hideous pictures on the walls. Oxford is very pretty, but I don't like to be dead. How are their children sprawling? Sprawling out of vaginas. <laughs> all, the, all these children just like, just rolling around on the ground. Limbs akimbo. His biographers say of his time at Oxford that he, quote, was seen as little of Oxford as possible. This is a sentiment that shows up later in some of his works, including the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which he wrote throughout his 20s and published in 1915 with the help of Ezra Pound. Ezra Pound, in short, like Megan laid out, much like Ellie, was an American expatriate, was known, like Ellie, for helping form literary modernism, and he was anti-Semitic, which Ellie may have been as well. In short, at best, Pound was problematic, mm. put it lightly. He openly supported fascism. As for Ellie, will you, dear listener, get to decide? People are kind of split. One poem 
that those who claim Ellie is anti-Semitic point to is Burbank with a Baydecker Bleistein with a cigar, in which Elliot wrote, quote, The rats are underneath the piles. The Jew is underneath the lot. Money <laughs> infers. Not great. In a lecture at the University of Virginia, Ellie said, quote, What is still more important than cultural hegemony is unity of religious background and reasons of race and religion combined to make any large number of free-thinking Jews undesirable. You know what? Maybe it's not. See, because the stuff that I'm... Nazi, I know. (laughs) The the critics are just like, you know, "Mm, I don't know, was he? Like, that's a hell of a fucking clear-ass sentence. (laughs) So in the shadow of World War I, writing over a thousand love letters to a woman he professed his love for back in the U.S., palling around with anti-Semitic fascists, Ellie still found the time to make some dates. Enter Vivian High Wood. Ellie and her were set up by friends, and within months, they were married. That's never a good sign. Ain't, like, no, t- ain't, not, wait, ain't <laughs> no time like the present, <laughs> ain't, I guess. Ain't, not a time. <laughs> ain't no time like the present, I guess. Smell you later, Emily Hale. Literally. This was no Literally? Happy- oh, he's gonna smell her later. Oh. She, she's only off the stage for now, don't worry. Okay. As you correctly assume, shotgun wedding here, it don't work out. This was not a happy marriage, however. For one, apparently Vivian had a lot of health problems, which included, quote, habitually high temperature, fatigue, insomnia, migraines, and colitis. This was also coupled with apparent mental instability, according to those on the scene. So she was literally a hot, shitty machine that didn't have all the marbles there, at least according to those who tell the tale. And they were married within months. (laughs) He saw it and was like, I I love her. (laughs) Being a man who sticks to his vows of in sickness and in health, Ellie dumped her ass, and the two separated, and eventually Viv was institutionalized against her will by her brother. That sounds familiar. Like a Disney story. Yep. If you'd like to learn more about Viv, or the relationship between her and Ellie, or you're just really into colitis, who am I to judge, check out the play Tom and Viv, which is about, well, Tom and Viv. Or the movie version, which has Willem Dafoe as T.S. Eliot. Uh, I was hoping you were going to say Viv. <laughs> no, that's uh, Miranda Richardson. Later in life, in a private diary, he wrote when reflecting on the marriage, quote, I came to persuade myself that I was in love with Vivian, simply because I wanted to burn my boats and commit myself to staying in England. And she persuaded herself, also under the influence of Ezra Pound, that she would save the poet by keeping him in England. To her, the marriage brought no happiness. To me, it brought the state of mind out of which came the wasteland. Wow. That's a hell of an indictment, as we'll get to. <laughs> he would only see Vivian one time after their separation before her death about two decades later. By this point, Ellie was a name in the literary field. The love song of J. Alfred Prufrock was published, The Wasteland was not all that far behind, and he had not even hit 30 quite yet. To make a living, as seemingly no one ever makes a living from their writing, at least not initially, Ellie taught while remaining overseas for the time being. He did get to meet people like James Joyce, the fart fetishist, Not that there's anything wrong with that. No kink shame. It was an odd couple, though. Ellie thought Joyce was an arrogant prick. Joyce thought Ellie was a talentless hack. Ah, cat. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, true bromance. That's how it goes. (laughs) That's how cat goes. Eventually, though, Ellie did return stateside, getting an offer to teach from Harvard as a full-fledged professor. Being stateside, he remembered that old flame of his, Emily. Oh, yeah, that girl I liked and then discarded. It wasn't long before the two warmed that whole thing back up. The thing is, though, the two never did get married. Instead, it is said the two had a very deep emotional relationship, but Ellie continued to play the field and remarried late in life when he was 68 to a 30-year-old, Esme Valerie Fletcher. Always. Always with this shit. Yes, I know Megan thinks the 38-year difference is gross, but I could actually top that here. Not only I don't want you to. Not only was he 38 years older, she was also his secretary. Uh, not only that, uh, she'd been his secretary for eight years at that point, uh, since she was 22, uh, and he was a cool 60. Uh, Mind you, this was before the advent of Viagra, so it's unclear how successful Ellie was at consummating the marriage. Uh, still gross. But given their wide age difference when they married... And then the fact she lived to be 85, he died in 1965, and she died in 2012. Wow, that's wild. Can you imagine your spouse dying almost 50 years after you? Think of the residuals and the Social Security survivor benefits you can cash in on. Ka-ching! Hey, 
Uh, is Stephen King single? <laughs> yeah. Am I his type? Because, I mean, <laughs> honestly, how much longer do you think he has? Stephen King? I don't think he's obscenely old yet. I don't know. Mm. Is this a fine answer with RJ Tip, Mary Authors on the Brink of Death? Yes. <laughs> Ka-ching. But yes, Ellie died on January 4th, 1965 at the age of 76 due to emphysema. He died in London, as well before he died, back in his late 30s, Ellie renounced his American citizenship and became a British citizen. This does beg the question, is he an American author or an English one? On the one hand, he was born in the U.S. and lived his formative years in the U.S. On the other hand, he was a British citizen for longer during his natural life. I will say I teach both British and American literature, and the good people at Norden have decided to put him in the American literature collection. I guess they're like, he was born here, we claim him, no take backsies. Ellie is used to teach modernism. For those of you not all caught up on literary epochs, modernism is considered to run from roughly 1914 through a good bit of the 20th century, basically from World War I until the 1960s. And we've talked a bit about, because we've covered some authors who are working in the modernist era, and the, the gist of it is they're fucking upset about everything. Well, so World War I shocked the world. It came after a general period of peace and it brought war to the newspapers, which a majority of people can now read as a majority of people in industrialized nations were now literate. Authors at the time felt art no longer represented the sensibilities of their time, and they sought to correct that. The motto of the modernist movement, which came from Ezra Pound, was make it new. Modernist literature came into its own due to increasing industrialization and globalization. New technology and the horrifying events of both world wars, but specifically World War I, made many people question the future of humanity, what was becoming of the world. Gone was the romantic period that focused on nature and being. Modernist fiction spoke of the inner self and consciousness. Instead of progress, the modernist writer saw a decline of civilization. Instead of new technology, the modernist writer saw cold machinery and in increased capitalism, which alienated the individual and led to loneliness. To achieve the emotions described above, most modernist fiction was cast in first person, whereas earlier most literature had a clear beginning, middle, and end, or an introduction, conflict, and a resolution, the modernist story was often more of a stream of consciousness. Case in point, the beginning of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I shall read now. Oh, oh, we're going right to you. Okay. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels, and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit in the room, women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. So we're in Proofrock's company for the evening, and we are on our way someplace, somewhere. I always like that line. When the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. Oh, he's making fun of the hoity-toity, like I said. He doesn't really like but the he is a hoity-toity. Oh, he don't like him. Well, he looks at Michelangelo, and he doesn't come and go. He fucking stares at that dick. He goes, look at David's penis. I bet there ain't no hernias on it. Yeah, look at that non-hernia dick. All these women come and go, just flutter about. Not me. All right, so anyway, we are Proofrock's company for the evening, and we are on our way someplace, somewhere. Either is what early surgeons use as a form of anesthetic to numb the pain of surgery. Whatever is meant to happen tonight will apparently be painful and unpleasant, or maybe just unsavory to most of civilized society, after all. Rooms, but for one night? Like, fucking? Maybe. <laughs> a whore. <gasps> eh. We hear that Proofrock has an important question on his mind. But he doesn't want us asking about it or talking about it. And then there's that jarring juxtaposition. He's, he's vague blogging. <laughs> and then there's this jarring juxtaposition between the blue-collared restaurants and the Michelangelo discourse. And then he invokes the image of everyone's favorite animal. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes. The yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes. Licked its tongue into the corners of the evening. Lingered upon the pools that stand in drains. Let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled about the house and fell asleep. A motherfucking cat! Ah! Now, I saw the episode of The Crown about how foggy it is over there in England. No one thought it was cute like a cat, much to the contrary. 
Shit sucks. Well, I, I don't think we're supposed to think this is cute like cat either. It doesn't sound particularly positive. Anyway, I don't want to ca- get carried away with this poem. Because most of Elliot's poems tend to go on. But I do think it is very good. You should read it. It's different. Are you not going to read the coffee spoons line? Nope. The narrator is on the one hand. That's the one that most people know. And then they take out of context and get tattooed that I have opinions on. You talk about it. The narrator is on the one hand completely insufferable. But you do feel for him. He hates high culture and he wants to let it be known. He's also reflecting on that he's middle-aged and, and sad. Oh, but he's also scared to let his feelings be known. Yes. He's afraid to press the issue. He wants to wait for the perfect moment, but the perfect moment never comes. And before he knows it, he's old. The moment passed. The poem ends. I grow old. I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? <laughs> Shall I wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach? I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows the water white and black, we have lingered in the chambers of the sea, by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, till humans' voices wake us and we drown. What a bummer guy. In short, <laughs> YOLO people, YOLO. Eat that peach. Don't be like Mr. Proofrock over here. That was always the line that I found first the funniest when I had to read it in school when I was like 16. It's like, do I dare to eat a peach? And then you're an adult and you realize just how fucking sad it is that this guy, like you said, that he just, he's so full of things and feelings and he expresses none of it. And like the biggest things in his life are... Do I part my hair to one side? Do I wear funky pants? Do I eat a peach? No, I'm probably not going to do any of these things. You're so paralyzed by the simplest things. I wonder if anyone can relate, Megan. I eat peaches all the time. Fuck you. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy middle of the, m- the month. What are, you, what are you gonna do? It's Megan, and also Pravi, because this episode is mostly going to be about cats. And I know we haven't gotten there exactly yet, but trust me, we will. I don't think he's a jellical cat, because he has yet to introduce himself to me in human language and tell me uh, why he deserves to die and go to cat heaven, but he's nonetheless a very good boy. You wanna share anything, bud? Now nah, you just want to purr into the, the mic. That's cool. Just a good boy. Um, we're back. And at this point, I, I know better than to say, and better than ever, because that's, I don't know if that's a standard that we could ever live up to, but I hope that, you know, you're happy that we're back. We're certainly excited to be back. We've got some cool stuff planned as we approach our three-year anniversary. Holy shit. But, uh, ow, okay, hi, yes. Yes, you're. I know you're here. I see you. N- not you personally. The ca- the cat. The cat's. Okay. Okay. Ow. Ow. Maybe this was not the best idea to let you in here. Stop it. Stop it. Anyway, this, this is some good audio. This episode and our show in general is brought to you in part by our wonderful, beautiful, jellical patrons, including our newest one, Matilde. I really hope that I am pronouncing your name right, Matilde. Let me know if I'm not, and I'll fix it. If you would like to become one of our Patreon members, you should go You should go to patreon.com slash class and get access to bonus episodes and merch that we don't have available anywhere else, like special bookmarks, stickers, shirts, and the ability to vote on stuff we do next. Like, they just got done voting with what we're going to do for our anniversary episode actually we just got one more episode in between that i really don't have anything too much to announce here don't have a pod pal this week because poor planning as you're gonna find out because this episode's going up late but you know it's the new year we also have some personal things going on that we'll probably bring up when we record the next episode when i say personal i don't mean like dark personal biz but just some programming notes of stuff going on that might make our episode release slightly fucky but in the meantime we love you enjoy this episode and here's a little here's a little cat asmr
Yeah, that's that good stuff right there. Pravi purrs gently into your ear for 20 minutes ASMR. No, I, we're, we're not actually going to do that. Now, as for what Megan wants to cover, Old Possum's Book of Practical Cats, well, more explicitly about cats, was not the anthem of the coming modernist movement like Proof Rock, and in fact came when Ellie was already pushing 51, so much later in his life. He wrote under the assumed name, Old Possum, which is the name he signed letters to his godchildren. Because why not? Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? Take us to Cat Town. No. Oh. <laughs> I have to take us to Depression Town before I take us I to Cat Town. I already did that. Yeah, but I gotta take us further to Depression Town, because, like, the juxtaposition is important. So, before we even get to uh, his other poems, I want to just kind of take, take, take a little left turn and talk about literary criticism real quick, because I think it's interesting, and I never knew it was something that Elliot did, because we didn't talk about it when we studied his poems in school, and... Also, we don't talk very much about literary criticism at all, considering all the literature we criticize. Mostly I just talk about how much I hate Harold Bloom. I hate Harold Bloom. He's not a fascist as far as I know, but he is an awful bore. So Yeah, but Meg, you gotta give him points. Not a fascist. Not a fascist. Good job, Harold. That, that Bloom. means he at least has a C. <laughs> so in nineteen nineteen he wrote this essay called Hamlet and His Problems, which honestly really could just be the name of the play. <laughs> This essay was, to put it lightly, a big deal, partly because he was daring to call one of Shakespeare's most celebrated works, quote, most certainly an artistic failure. So that's, that's nice and inflammatory. And also because he was using critical techniques that would soon become very popular, known, as I previously mentioned, as new criticism. So what the hell is that, you may ask? What the hell is that, I may ask? Well, it's the literary critique of the modern formalist school. Of course. So what the hell is that, you may ask? No, that I know exactly what it is. Ah. But I'm not going to explain it because I don't want to belittle our audience. (laughs) Well, I'm going to. (laughs) I'm going to talk down to y'all. Formalism was a school of criticism that people got very into in the 20th century during this modernist period. It was very big on close reading. That sort of line-by-line breakdown of a text that your teacher might make you do in a desperate attempt to cram some poetry or other complicated language into your head, as well as closed-off reading, meaning that they looked at the text and only the text. Anything else, like maybe what might have been happening at the period in history in which it was written, what was going on with the author at the time, whether it was written as part of a movement where people were writing stuff in a similar style. Fuck it. Who cares? Can this piece stand on its own through pure, autonomous, structural power? And in the case of Hamlet, Eliot said no. No. Just like that, probably. According to Eliot, Hamlet isn't a good character, just one that's easy to project and fixate on, and that helps its audience ignore that the play is bad, I guess. He argues that the play needs the historical context that it draws on, namely the earlier works that Shakespeare steals from. For more on that, listen to episode 13, Hamlet! Revenge! And that without knowledge of these older works, Hamlet's actions, like his delaying of killing his uncle and acting like a crazy person, don't make sense or are not properly conveyed at least according to Eliot. Keep in mind, this is a significantly abridged summary of his essay, and I'm mainly bringing all this up because irony, because the only fucking poems we're going to look at that stand on their own and aren't just a party grab bag of references to other works of fiction and historical contexts are the ones about motherfucking cats. Cats. Oh, we keep doing that wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> so let's talk about them, shall we? Cats. Not cats, No. First, we're going to talk about The Wasteland and The Hollow Men. So, The Wasteland was literally written out of spite and a desire to force people to spend a billion hours at the library because the internet wasn't a thing yet because looking up all the highfalutin, fancy tootin' references Elliot makes in this rambling, shambling, highly fragmented poem where named characters wander in and out at random while unnamed characters just start talking at, near, or just behind you was a thing. It was like what, what you just said. It was, it was a pure act of modernism. He thought culture was dying and that everybody was indolent and stupid and also atheist, which we've actually talked about. A lot of people turned away from religion after World War One because horrors of war. And he was like, you know, 
These kids today, with their atheism and their iPhones and whatnot, um, it's split into five different sections, and the unifying theme is essentially everything is breaking down, we are disillusioned and in despair and unable to properly communicate ideas anymore, please enjoy this fucking mess I made about it. So, modernism. And I realize that I usually spend our poetry episodes being like, look, don't be afraid to work a little harder when it comes to difficult poems. Don't write them off because they look weird. They usually have something really interesting and or horny to say. But I have a hyperlinked annotated version of The Wasteland open in a tab on my computer and every time I look at it, it makes me angry. I'm not going to read any of this poem because it is going to sound like gibberish. Like even more so than E.E. E. Cummings. Like we picked E.E. E. Cummings apart pretty well and there was, you know, like a sense under it. For The Wasteland, there's not a lot of sense in it. It's fragments. It's just pieces that don't seem to fit together. And that's because those pieces are references to other things, to a million different things, to older works of literature, to different religions, to historical events. And you could say that that's maybe worth exploring, but it fucking sucks to read. So that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> oh, the one more thing I'm going to say about that. Even H.P stick up his ass Lovecraft wrote a parody of the wasteland called Waste Paper, a poem of profound insignificance <laughs> that was like, fucking get over yourself. Which, while not particularly self-aware, is hilarious. Now how racist was it? Uh, he absolutely does make a reference to, I think he says like the word like darkies or dark colored men. So, yep, even when he's making fun of someone else, he can't help but be a goddamn racist. That's uh, New England for you. Yeah, well. Moving right along, we have The Hollow Men, a 98 line poem, which, yeah, a little shorter, contains one of the most often quoted lines since Who Watches the Watchmen, which is, this is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. It's in everything. It's however many episode titles to however many shows. When things end pathetically in any sort of work of fiction, you will have like a slow pan zoom in on a character being like, so this is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. This is how democracy ends. With to thunderous, thunderous applause. <laughs> and that's our Star Wars joke. So I think we've hit our quota. <laughs> hey, that's a great one. So much like The Wasteland, except shorter and a bit more coherent. I mean, there's a children's nursery rhyme about dancing around a cactus halfway through, but, you know, relatively speaking. Uh, the Hollow Men seems to follow this sort of journey of the spiritually dead. These are literally... It, it's pretty on the surface. These are hollow men. They are broken, lost souls. They are, they call themselves the stuffed men, that they're on crossed staves, that he's saying that they're basically like scarecrows. And basically, like J. Alfred Prufrock, they're paralyzed. They cannot express ideas. They cannot, you know, that there's this split between thought and action. They can't carry their thoughts into action. It's not just the men that's hollow, it's the world that's hollow. So it actually opens with a quote, uh, with two quotes, because T.S. Eliot can't fucking write anything without making overt references to other works, so good job with that new criticism and formalist reading style, you fucking hypocrite. Uh, so the Holloman actually opens with the line, Mr. Kurtz, he dead, referencing Conrad's Heart of Darkness, and uh, a penny for the old guy, which is a reference to people asking for like money for like effigies on Guy Fawkes Day which, as we know, is about a failure to, what was it, blow up Parliament? Yeah. Yeah. So again, a failure of action. And Kurtz could definitely be counted as a pretty major failure. If you want to know more about that, you can listen to our episode on Heart of Darkness. I don't remember what number that one is. It's called Bowels of Darkness because we get very distracted by a certain celebrity's digestive tract. Uh, so it opens with those two references, and it says, We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men, leaning together, headpiece filled with straw, alas. Our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless, as wind in dry grass, or rats' feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion. Those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom, remember us, if at all, 
not as lost, violent souls, but only, only as trains. Thomas, the train. A choo choo choo. <laughs> but only as the hollow men, the stuffed men. And see, I like this when when he's not just writing fucking gibberish like. He's very evocative. This one is also kind of long, so I'm going to skip to the end here. Although, if you want to know about the cactus part, it just it's the start of a new section. It just says, here we go around the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go around the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Just there, just in the middle. Between the idea and the, and the reality, between the motion and the act falls the shadow. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response falls the shadow. So that's here, the breakdown between the two things, between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence. Are you getting it? Is it making sense? Do you understand that he's pounding into your head? I get it. For thine is life, for thine is the, and then it cuts off. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends, not with a bang, but a whimper. Whoa. Whoa. It's just a complete breakdown of, of language, prayer, and spirit as the world comes to an end. Not with World War Three, <laughs> as many people online are currently talking about, but just with a little... Eh. Eh. That's not really a whimper, I guess. Mm. 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 That's it. That's how the world's gonna end. So, just a lot of doom and gloom shit, basically. Then he got old. And then we got old Possum's Book of Practical Cats. Old Possum. It's impossible to not say Old Possum. Like, Old Possum, it is Practical Cats. (laughs) So that was published in 1939. It was a collection of cutesy poems about cats written expressly for his godkids. Here you will find not weird, unfathomable, and ominous metaphors about the end of the world and the death of culture, but instead just a bunch of cute rascally kitties. Except McCavity, who is apparently a devious criminal who has broken all the laws of man. As happens. But we'll get there. And they've got some bizarre fucking names that are vaguely sexual, like Rum Tum Tugger and Mungo Jerry and Rumple Teaser. I also want to point out, these cats all have their own each individual Wikipedia articles. As happens. I don't know, man. I'm, I want to read the... It's It's a pretty big collection but i want to read the naming of cats which is the opening poem just so you can understand in no way am i saying get you a man like t.s Eliot because don't absolutely do not do that but like the get you a man who can do both meme is just so real here so this is the the opening poem in the book of practical cats The naming of cats is a difficult matter. It isn't just one of your holiday games. You may think at first I'm mad as a hatter when I tell you a cat must have three different names. First of all, there's the name that the family use daily, such as Peter, Augustus, Alonzo, or James. (laughs) I'm gonna name my cat Alonzo. Not James? (laughs) No, Alonzo. Such as Victor, or Jonathan, George, or Bill Bailey. All of them sensible, everyday names. There are fancier names if you think they sound sweeter. Some for the gentlemen, some for the dames, such as Plato, Admetus, Electra, Demeter. All of them sensible, everyday names. But I tell you, a cat needs a name that's particular, a name that's peculiar and more dignified. Else, how can he keep up his tail perpendicular, or spread out his whiskers, or cherish his pride? Check this dick. Of names of this kind, I can give you a quorum, such as Monkus Trap, Quaxo, or Coracapat, such as Bombalorina, or else Jelly Lorum, names that never belong to more than one cat. You got that right. But above and beyond, there's still one name left over, and that is the name that you never will guess. The name that no human research can discover, but the name the cat himself knows and will never confess. When you notice a cat in profound meditation, The reason I tell you is always the same. His mind is engaged in a rapt contemplation of the thought of the thought of his name, his ineffable, effable, effinineffable, deep and inscrutable singular name. Boom. It's juxtapose that with, we are the hollow men, we are the stuffed men, we whisper together quiet and meaningless. (laughs) It's just wild. Here's the thing about hollow men, Meg. Yeah. We're all kind of hollow. I mean, I guess. Now, I don't know if we ever talked about it on the show before. Oh, boy. But if you think of a human being, what we really are yeah. is a straw. It'd be a crazy straw if you want to do that, but I, we're a straw. I mean, we're mostly filled with water. Well, but see, there's a direct pipe that goes from our mouth 
out our ass. This is true. And we're kind of, like, most of the body's kind of built around that. But us ourselves, we're the straw. We're hollow. <laughs> we have to carry the baggage of our body. Think about it. No. So we, we talk about a bunch of different cats here. Mr. Mestifopheles, Old Deuteronomy, Mungo Jerry, and Co. That might be racist. Um, they, they, don't, they sound really weird. They might be racist. I don't know. Well, we Deuteronomy's probably, not. Maybe. Well, no. Yes, I know Deuteronomy is not. We could have done our due diligence and looked further into it, but no. I mean you. But then there's there's McCavity the mystery cat. I'm not going to read the whole poem because it's kind of long, but it's just really funny. that. So we've just got these cats, and most of them, when they're doing things like they're doing cat things, like it's exaggerated and funny, but it's still like cat activities. And then we've got McCavity. McCavity's a mystery cat. He's called the Hidden Paw, for he's the master criminal who can defy the law. He's the bafflement of Scotland Yard, the flying squad's despair, for when they reach the scene of the crime, McCavity's not there. McCavity, McCavity, there's no one like McCavity. He's broken every human law. He breaks the law of gravity. <laughs> every human law. Every. He's committed murder. And incest. He cheats on his taxes. <laughs> and runs red lights. <laughs> he drives under the influence and in the carpool lane when he's the only one in the car. He dabbles in sodomy. <laughs> the cavity's done crack cocaine. <laughs> now I'm so stuck on the cavity doing it in the wrong cavity. Sodomy. Ah, yes, I get it. It's a butt joke. No, sodomy is also oral sex. You didn't know this? No, I didn't. I was. Yeah. I thought sodomy was a butt thing specifically. Sodomy is basically anything other than P and V, bro. Really? Well, because we still have like those backwards. Are, are there? There are still states in the U.S. where sodomy is deemed technically illegal in there. I believe so. But they've used that only to reinforce butt stuff, as far as I know, because they they make it an anti-gay thing. I don't think they're gonna bust a, a hetero couple for for doing an oral sex. No, yeah, don't look at me and say, don't look at me and say I don't know. Like I don't you, know. you fucking know. And I don't know. <laughs> Here's some towns, and if it ain't P and V for the point of procreation, they don't like it. That's probably the same towns where dancing is illegal, like in fucking Footloose or whatever. Yeah, well, they exist. See. Well, McCavity does. Footloose. Footloose. Everybody gonna footloose. Everybody gonna footloose. And you know who was footloose? The Hollow Man. What? Kevin Bacon. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) The film, The Hollow Man, is unrelated to the poem no it's not no it's a, it's a it's a remake of the invisible man except when kevin bacon gets invisible man powers he just decides to like commit sexual assault exactly all these crimes of mccavity cavity turns invisible and commits sexual assault he also in parentheses, then, he, che- then... he cheats at cards it says he's broken treaties he's de- mccavity has uh broken the geneva conventions the cavity killed Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> All right, we're going to move on from the cavity. Uh, the last one I want to look at is because, you know, obviously we're talking about cats because of Andrew Lloyd Webber's cats, his fucking Broadway show that we know very little about. And all of the, all of the cats, they're a whole gang. They're referred to as the Jellicle cats. And they never explain what a jellical cat is. Just that jellical cats are, and jellical cats can, and jellical cats will. I was listening to some songs on YouTube. It was not particularly illuminating. And then I was like, oh, okay, but he actually has a poem in this book called The Jellical Cat. So maybe this will explain what the fuck a, a jellical cat is. It's called a Song of the Jellicles. It says... Jellical cats come out tonight. Jellical cats come one come all. The jellical moon is shining bright. Jellicles come to the jellical ball. Jellical cats are black and white. Jellical cats are rather small. Jellical cats are merry and bright and pleasant to hear when they caterwaul. Jellical cats have cheerful faces. Jellical cats have bright black eyes. They like to practice their airs and graces and wait for the jellical moon to rise. Jellical cats develop slowly. Jellical cats are not too big. Jellicle cats are roly-poly. They know how to dance a, gav- a gavot, gavot? and a jig. Until the jellicle moon appears, they make their toilette and take their repose. Jellicles wash behind their ears. Jellicles dry between their toes. 
Jellicoe cats are white and black. Jellicoe cats are of moderate size. Jellicoe cats can barely come in any fucking size as long as they're white and black. Jellicles jump like a jumping jack. Jellicoe cats have moonlit eyes. They're quiet enough in the morning hours. They're quiet enough in the afternoon, reserving their terpsichorean powers to dance by the light of the Jellicle moon. Jellicle cats are black and white. Jellicle cats, as I said, are small. Even he knows he's repeating himself. If it happens to be a stormy night, they will practice a caper or two in the hall. If it happens the sun is shining bright, you would say they had nothing to do at all. They are resting and saving themselves to be right for the Jellicle moon and the Jellicle ball. So, Jellicle cats are black and white. Sometimes they're big, sometimes they're small. They really like dancing, specifically at night. I still don't know what Jellicle means. Angelical. I don't think so, though, because that didn't that come up when I Googled. Oh, Google. Well, I did. Well, okay, Boomer. Oh. You did the Google. Oh. How good are you? Oh, I, I Google. I Google how to Google. And then I go, how to Google Jellico. Oh, suck my dick. Okay, Boomer. <laughs> it's 2020. So the show by Andrew Lloyd Webber came out in the, the 80s. It adds like a billion fucking cats. And the plot is that they prance around in an uncomfortably sexual manner and introduce themselves and that's it. They, they dance and sing and they say, I'm so-and-so. I'm Gr- Grizzlebone. I'm the Rumple Teaser. And whoever does this the best gets to go to the heavy side lair, which means they die. They get to, they die and they get to go to cat heaven. It's a musical about a death cult of cats. The Jellicles are a death cult. This is one of the longest-running musicals on Broadway, only to be dethroned by a different Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, The Phantom of the Opera, which has other problems that one day we'll also get to go into because that's also based on a work of literature. Andrew Lloyd Webber does drugs. I'm so- <laughs> I don't know. M- McCavity is there. He's still a criminal. In the new movie that came out, Idris Elba's McCavity, and they made the horrible decision to make him a short hair cat, and also to make his fur very, very close to the color of his skin, so he looks like a little naked man with a tail, and it's fucking weird. We haven't seen the Cats movie, because I like sleeping at night. But what version would you see if you were to see it? The OG version or the new updated version? Well, I looked at the 80s version on YouTube because that's the one that... Or oh, not, no, no, or no, 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 I think it's 1998. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the two different versions that theaters currently make. Oh, you mean the one where the CGI is not done yet yeah. and the one where they patched it like it's a fucking Bethesda game? Yes. <laughs> I don't want to see either of them. I, I saw the recorded stage version on YouTube and, I mean, it's still weird, but the makeup and the costumes aren't, like, fucking bizarre like the CGI shit. It's not going to, like, haunt me. Oh, yeah, the one thing that I thought was interesting is the one thing that I did know about Cats, which is the song Memory, which I think is the only thing that people who don't know about Cats know about Cats, where where the old sad cat is, like, the memory all alone in the moonlight. I'm a sad old cat. Was cribbed from a different T.S. Eliot poem that's entirely unrelated to the cat ones called Rhapsody on a Windy Night, which I, th- I thought was interesting. So they like take actual lines like uh, the-, the moon has lost her memory and she is alone. Every street lamp that I pass beats like a fatalistic drum. And they, they change that into like, has the moon lost her memory? She's she's alone. Every street lamp seems to beat a fatalistic warning. Like it's interesting to look at them side by side. And I just think it's interesting that they were like, all right, we're going to make some more songs, but we're going to take it from different T.S. Eliot works. Is there a song in Cats that's based on the wasteland? <laughs> that's what I want to know. That's about all I had of that. Let's what else did I have? I mean... There's a a bunch of references to the Hollow Men specifically, like in popular culture. So obviously in Apocalypse Now that Francis Ford Coppola was very influenced by it. Uh, Stephen King. You know, it's funny you were just mentioning Stephen King and about how you might want to marry him in the hopes that he dies and you get his money. Yeah. So the first stanza of The Hollow Men is printed one line at a time at the beginning of the TV version of Stephen King's The Stand, and it's referenced by a character in it, and is his Dark Tower series contains multiple references to both The Hollow Men and The Wasteland, and it, he makes a reference to The Hollow Men in Pet Cemetery with the line, quote, or maybe someone who had escaped from Eliot's poem about The Hollow Men. I should have been a pair of ragged claws. That, that latter sentence is actually taken from the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. 
And he also references it in Under the Dome, which I, I've not read or seen. That's a TV show. I think it was a book or something for, I don't know. Stephen King did the thing. Stephen King likes T.S. Eliot is what I'm saying. So you can bond with him over that. And as you would expect, Metal Gear Solid, you know, the pretentious ass video games are definitely going to quote pretentious ass shit like that. Because hey, it's me, Snake. War never changes. And he does say that this is the way the world ends, not with Otacon. The world ends with a bang, not a bang, but a whimper. He's not the one who says it. It's it's some person named the AI Colonel. I have not played Metal that Gear may also Solid be Snake. 2, Sons Isn't of Liberty. Isn't Snake like 10 different characters? Snake has a lot of names. I think Big Boss might also be Snake. I don't know. A lot of music likes to reference the Hollow Men. Just because this is the way the world ends. is just like I said. It's a really popular line to quote. There's only one song that I found that references uh, J. Alfred Prufrock, and that's the Canadian 90s one-hit wonder band, in America anyway, uh, Crash Test Dummies, that they had a pretty sizable hit outside the U.S. with a song called Afternoons and Coffee Spoons. And they have lyrics in it that says, Someday I'll have a disappearing hairline. Someday I'll wear pajamas in the daytime. Afternoons will be measured out, measured out, measured out with coffee spoons and T.S. Eliot. It sounds like every other 90s song ever with like that Pearl Jam, Stone Temple pilot kind of vocals. And then also a harmonica. That's good music right there. Yeah. Uh, and also harmonica. And like unrelated, but what was up with the 90s and harmonicas? Boost Travelers. Man. Yeah, well that's, well that's what I think of immediately. But like 90s and harmonicas was a thing. Harmonicas are great. So that's that's all I've got on T.S. Eliot. I kind of tra- I just sort of transitioned into adaptation sort of messily. This whole episode is sort of messy. It's been a, a hot minute since we podcasted. We may have forgotten how to. We forget how to podcast pretty regularly. But I'll, do you have anything else that you want to say before we go into the part of the show that we always go to? A cat laying on a mat is not a story. A cat laying on the dog's mat. Now that. Is a story. What is this? RJ's thought of the day. What, yeah, where's it cribbed from? No one. You're lying. <laughs> I'm gonna Google it. No, it's 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 just things about buying mats mm. for dog or cats and things. Oh no! Why you should never let your cat sleep in your bed? Oh no! Oh no! Yeah, Google just wants to sell me fucking bed mats for cats and dogs. Just tell me what you're quoting. It's much faster. John will care. John LeCarre? John LeCarre. Should you just call him fucking John LeCarre? <laughs> okay, so spy spy thriller writer John John LeCarre. Yes. Where'd you get that from? The internet. Oh, God. And now it's time to get to the part of the show we always get to, and that is, hey, RJ. Sup? T.S. Eliot. Good? Bad? You want to apply some new criticism to him? The cat sat on the mat is not a story. The cat sat on the dog's mat is a story. John LeCarre. Okay. Or is it LeCarre? It's definitely Le not John LeCarre. <laughs> Jesus. That old bitch. <laughs> Actually, wait. You know what? He's old. You think I'm just hey, are, you, are you still alive? You just want a prize. Oh. You want $100,000. <laughs> 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 I can get in on that yeah. sweet. Get those Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy residuals. Yes. So what's the question here? What, what, what was the It's just T.S. Eliot good or bad. I mean. <laughs> I said you want to apply some, some formalist new criticism to him. Oh, like 2020, like hashtag no more criticism? No, ha- ha- new criticism as in the one that I was literally just explaining about where we do the opposite of that, where we ignore anything outside of the text itself and we just oh, do a if close we, reading. If we do that, as some of his biographers do, great author. And if you do what some other biographers do, troubled person, still a good author. And then we come to the question we always seem to come to. Do we overlook the shortcomings of the person or the failings of the person? And still respect the work. Well, clearly, according to the literary canon, yup, because he's still studied today. And as we've said on the show many times, whenever you're reckoning with a shitty person in the work that they've created, whether or not you want to do Death of the Author, 
it's it's a very personal thing and it's a case-by-case basis this is especially relevant now with like the harry potter series which a lot of people grew up with and is very important to them and jk rowling is a shit person and for some people that's like all right fuck it that's it harry potter means nothing to me anymore and yeah no it's hard for me to kind of weigh in on that i was never particularly attached to harry potter so it's pretty easy for me to just be like like I wasn't gonna read them anymore anyway so it's not like I I'm cutting all ties for some people it's it's a lot more difficult but that's not the point is we're not talking about J.K. Rowling we're talking about T.S. Eliot so you say he's a great author why what is it about the because you really really like the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock and you didn't really delve into what it is about that poem that gets you so hard it's well written and good if you got an essay from a student that said, I like this poem because it's well-written and good, would you be cool with that? Or would you write in the margins, fucking explain yourself? That's at least a C-. minus. <laughs> that passes. They have an opinion. I respect that opinion. Oh, see, I would definitely write in on the side, what, what do you mean by that? Elaborate. <laughs> I mean, especially when you read stuff like Proof Rock compared to things that were written around the same time and before you obviously begin to see the change and then when we think of literature nowadays you think of more stuff like Elliot than you know the romantics necessarily and yeah, it, we don't live in romantic times anymore. well exactly <laughs> so you know it was authors like Elliot who helped usher in new way for us to express ourselves in the changing world and the world that we see now and I don't know if we've really moved beyond that all that much i mean obviously there's been other epochs and different kinds of literature along the way it's not to say there's only modernist literature but our literary world and i would say our art world in general is still dominated by modernism i think especially in like the past decade you've seen a lot more uh is it dadaism or dataism I think Dada. Dada, yeah. You see a lot of Dadaism, which was a split off of modernism and the idea of art is nothing and nothing is real. Especially if you look at internet memes today, and I say that completely sincerely, that a lot of it is very Dadaist. Like, that is the, you don't get more mainstream sort of popular culture away from what we would consider high art than internet memes. That's something of the people. And so if you have the common masses of the people, like this generation that's coming up, embracing Dadaism, that is kind of interesting. <laughs> and I mean, I think because postmodernism is a thing. I, that's true. I, 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 I did just hop, skip and jump over I, postmodernism. I enjoy there. postmodernism, but I feel most people don't get postmodernism. <laughs> People struggle with that in literature and art in general. And so that's why I say modernism is still the dominant force, I feel. Well, the death of irony kind of killed postmodernism. Postmodernism makes it it hard, don't you think? Postmodernism makes it hard to fucking define postmodernism on purpose. It does it on purpose. It's just like, oh, you can't tell what postmodernism is. I could be almost anything. Fuck you, postmodernism. Pomo. Hey, Megan. You heard Tizzles. Tizzles. Fuck, I want to do like a T-swizzle, like Taylor Swift, and I just couldn't pull it off. Tizzles. Sure. Your thoughts. Good, bad, otherwise. Seems like otherwise to me. Yeah. Well, because it's hard. Like like I said. It is hard. It is hard. It's always, no, I really would rather not. So, obviously, problematic dude. Not great. Probably a pervert in his 60s, marrying his fucking secretary, 38 years younger, Jesus fucking Christ, that's not even touching the anti-Semitism and the fact that he was just the best pals with Ezra fucking Pound. But leaving aside the man and focusing solely on the work, I find his work very frustrating for the most part. I find it incredibly pretentious. I have a very low threshold for pretentious shit that's like, oh, I'm making references to high art and things you might not know. Oh, you're going to need to read an annotated version to tell you all the things. I mean, that's part of why I can't stand a lot of, um, speaking of postmodernism, Thomas Pynchon. You know, or it's like, you know, you want to read Gravity's Rainbow? Here's a second book that you have to read with it that explains all the references in Gravity's Rainbow. I hate shit like that. I don't have time for that. I have things to do. Now, on the other hand, things, is you know, works that are kind of easier to grab a hold of, like J. Alfred Prufrock, like The Hollow Men, there is some beautiful writing there. There's very evocative imagery. 
And so I can't just immediately be like, nope, throw that away. So I, it is kind of like an otherwise for me. But also, the reason that Cats exists right now is partly his fault. Andrew Lloyd Webber would not have been able to snort up uh, entire factors worth of cocaine and make that musical if Old Possum's book of practical cats didn't exist. And so that's his fault too. And some, for some people it's a good thing, for some people it's a bad thing. <laughs> Who can say? Uh, that is my non-answer for today's episode. And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono oh Lick Class. If you want to help us keep measuring out our life in coffee spoons, if you want to keep us away from the wasteland, <laughs> I don't know, spread the word. Uh, tell, tell your family, tell your friends, tell the hollow men. Be like, hey, you can fill yourselves up with Ono oh Lick Class. You can try to stem the tide of existential despair with this great podcast about books and Star Wars jokes. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. You can join the Facebook group. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash You can buy some dope merch that, that we make with our own two grubby little hands. By which we, I mean the royal me. At onolicklass.threadlist.com. Uh, there should be some new designs popping in there soon. And, and that's, that's, that's about it. Just, you could just, you could just love us in that way that you do. You can dare to eat a peach. The Georgia peach. And yep. The next episode will be on January 30th. Until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Wait, Tremors. Best Kevin Bacon movie? No. Wow. Flatliners. Oh. <laughs> Let's keep her southern one. Kevin Bacon's in it. That's a Kiefer movie. I guess. Today, we're going to go on a roundabout here. Today, we're going to be talking about... A roundabout. On this roundabout. No one's going to get that joke. That is a, that's an ancient meme. That's... You want to start over? <laughs> <laughs> it's too late now.